Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is The Guardian. The instability we see in our region, the developments in the Ukraine, hopefully will play into the minds of voters as they go to the ballot box at the next election where they don't want to end up with a hung parliament with a dozen crossbenchers, which makes decision-making that much more difficult at a time when decision-making becomes that much more important. Hello, lovely potters. Welcome to the show. You're with Catherine Murphy and this is Australian Politics. We are in the final week of the current parliament. It's kind of amazing to think that, but I'm recording Thursday. It literally is the last day. It's hectic. People around the building are preparing for the coming campaign and some parliamentarians are bowing out of public life. They're heading into new careers or to retirement because there is this sense of a moment in time, something ending. I thought what I would do this week is ask the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, to front the show. He's had a very busy week with the budget, obviously. Josh, welcome to the program. Well, good day, Catherine. Uh, nice to be with you and your listeners. So, Josh, uh, you've had a hell of a journey, really, from the end of the Turnbull period. Uh, Scott Morrison assumed the leadership, and then you've been through this past term, which has been enormously heavy in all kinds of ways uh, with events and having to respond to, well, the biggest public health crisis, obviously, since the Spanish flu. So if we sort of take that as a span of time, Josh, from the neg and the sort of crash out of the neg to now, to today, what, you know, Dickens Dickens spoke famously of the best of times and the worst of times. So what were the best and, and what were the worst? It's been a tumultuous period, to say the least. Um, I w- it's also fair to say that I didn't have high expectations going into the last election. I thought that, you know, we'd, we'd give it our best shot and, uh, <laughs> and uh, when I saw um, that we got a bit of a lift post-budget in 2019, I had some dreams of, of getting over the line, but I certainly, um, you know, didn't think that that was a certainty and... It turned out to be um, the result we wanted and and we were, you know, given another opportunity. And and so that was pretty pleasing uh, and that was also pretty tumultuous. And then the budget uh, was postponed as we uh, obviously had uh, the COVID pandemic in 2020. And from there, it's been just a sprint for two years, responding to the most difficult and challenging mm. Um, health and economic environment 
In terms of the the worst of times, it was those early days in March and April 2020 when literally 1.4 million Australians lost their jobs or saw their working hours go down to zero. The images of our fellow Australians lining up outside Centrelink having uh, lost their jobs were for many, for many reminiscent of scenes of the Great Depression, speaking to lots of small business owners who saw their doors closed and were fearful of losing their life savings. Um, there was just fear right across the community and obviously we responded with JobKeeper and other programs, some 1,000 plus decisions that we took. The best feeling was obviously the trajectory that then occurred with the economy coming back We were in and out of lockdown in Victoria, which also took a toll on on so many of us at a human level, Um, you know, not being able to see our family, not being able to see our friends, having our kids out of the classroom. So that was a pretty low point as well. Um, And I felt, you know, at some times helpless because it's the state government that is making the determinations about who is in school and how far you can travel from your home and, um, you know, whether you're whether you're in fact, uh, you know, <laughs> to uh, allowed to open your business again. Um, but the best feeling is to see where the unemployment rate is today and to know that we have avoided um, the experience of earlier recessions in Australia, particularly the 80s and the 90s, where the unemployment rate was elevated for so long and it took, you know, 10 years for many to get back to work and that has not happened this time. Mm. What about sharing with people how you've, uh, I mean, it's sort of a silly way to put it, like how have you kept yourself together, but I really mean it, I suppose, at that human level, right? There's been a lot to do, uh, a lot of uh, decisions to make, particularly in the beginning when governments around the world were, were literally making it up as they went along in terms of what was the best way to respond. Tell us a little bit about your habits over this period because obviously you had to keep yourself well, you had to keep yourself connected, you had to buy some uh, some thinking time. Uh, you know, look, when Greg Combe left the parliament several years ago, I did a really interesting exit interview with him in which he was talking about the intensity Mm. of being a cabinet minister and how little time and space you get to process these really epic decisions. So what sort of habits and and rituals do you maintain in order to allow yourself to do that, to make these decisions? There were sort of two that were non-negotiable for me. The first was obviously getting up in the morning and and jumping on the stationary exercise bike. And whether you had three hours sleep or or five or six, um, it still was the means by which I started my day. And that helped because particularly when you're doing lots of media earlier in the morning and you haven't had much sleep, that is a means to wake up uh, as well as obviously to stay healthy. So regular exercise was really important. Um, there were plenty of hamburgers and chips and, and lollies in between, but regular exercise was, and lots of coffee, I have to dare I say, it, but uh, regular exercise was one. The other one was obviously staying closely connected with my family, who mean everything to me, and being away from home is hard, and lots of people in lots of different professions and, and uh, vocations are away from home, so I'm no different. But it was really important to have the FaceTime with, with my kids um, a couple of times a day in the morning, particularly interrupting Bluey um, <laughs> and before they went off to school and then in the evening before dinner. And, you know, when I did get home, having the opportunity to 
to read them a, a story at night was really important. So my family always keep me grounded. Um, they always remind me of what is the most important thing in my life. Politics comes and goes, elections come and go, budgets come and go, but your family is always there mm-hmm. with you. And uh, it might sound like I'm asking you the first question again in a different form, but that's it's not my intention. I just want you to focus on if you had to identify over this yeah. period one thing that you're most proud of, just only one, pick one, and one thing that if you're being honest, you regret? Well, the thing that I probably, I regret, but I'm not sure I could have changed, is the fact that the kids were out of school in Melbourne for so long. I think that was a terrible injustice. I think it's going to have long-term consequences. I had a local GP in my electorate contact me and say that they were providing antidepressants to kids as young as 12 during the lockdown. And they actually joined as a series of GPs to write an open letter to the Premier about what they were seeing uh, happen to kids' mental health. So I know that, you know, COVID is a deadly virus and, you know, this was the earlier strains as opposed to um, the Omicron strain. Uh, And there was also the pre-vaccine period as well. But I just feel I wish I could have done more on that. Yeah, I wish I tried to do more perhaps, but I don't, you know, I did speak out. And I don't regret that, by the way, Catherine. Speaking out, I was criticised by some across the political divide for doing so, but the people who felt the way I did needed to have a voice and that's why I said what I said and, and, I'm, and I'm actually very proud of what I said when I look back at that speech in the parliament that I gave Uh, when the Labor Party brought on a spontaneous suspension of of the parliament in order to debate Victoria. Um, In terms of what I'm proudest of, I mean, I am pretty proud of JobKeeper, I must say. I think, you know, for a Liberal Party, it's certainly not something we'd expected to to be announcing during a (laughs) a pandemic or otherwise, an economy-wide wage subsidy at a cost of $90 billion at a flat $1,500 a fortnight. And to get that out super quickly through the tax system and to get it out with integrity as well and that it was delivered not to dead people, it was delivered to, to uh, workers right around the country and to know that the economy bounced back very strongly with the connection between employers and employees, which is not a given um, because if you look at the United States, there are more than 2 million fewer Americans in work today than there were at the start of the pandemic, whereas in Australia there's 375,000 more people in work today than at the start of the pandemic. So they're my bookends, I suppose, um, the, you know, the terrible time that young people experience being out of the classroom, particularly the most disadvantaged kids, by the way, Catherine, the ones who either are not uh, able to access computer equipment at home or are living in a family environment where there's domestic violence or um, there's no parental supervision or they you know, they don't have English as a first language and um, may have found it difficult during those times. There's lots of issues, I think, that are a function of kids being out of a classroom, not for a month or two, but literally for a year or more. Mm. I want to take you to the current political environment, which obviously can't be ignored. Yeah. 
I did a field trip in northern Tasmania last week uh, in Bass and Braddon, and if I were to summarise the mood of voters there, certainly the voters that we spoke to over the week we were there, it would be this sense that the major parties are not delivering, people are quite negative about the Prime Minister, uh, they're not yet, though, convinced that Anthony Albanese is the answer to what they feel is missing in the political space. Now, uh, you know, a particular interest to there, and this is something that's a lived reality for you in your own seat, uh, there was quite a lot of spontaneous interest from people in Bass and Braddon about independence, particularly in that context, the Jackie Lambie network, uh, because Jackie Lambie has very high name recognition. Now, obviously, in Kuyong, you're facing a challenge from an independent as well. I realise you need uh, you need to be disciplined with your message and we're about to go into a campaign and you just can't say whatever the hell you think about these things. But as honestly as you can, try and talk to me about that environment. I don't imagine what I've just told you is a surprise to you, right? Yeah. So the independents are very well-funded and well-organised and are acting as a political party. In my case, I'm up against a former Labor Party member who sought to hide that background. They're running on the Labor Party platform. They're running with the support of the Labor Party. And what I mean by that is that the Labor Party is running dead in the seats in which these independents are campaigning and they're running only against Liberals in the city seats. But in, well, look, I mean, obviously in Bass and Braddon, Labor's contesting those two contests and and you're talking about the the Teal independents. Yeah, I'm talking about North Sydney, I'm talking about Boothby, I'm talking about um, Curtin, I'm talking about... Goldstein, I'm talking about Wentworth and obviously Kuyong. No, no, no. And acknowledging that, but all that is true. They are organised, they are well-funded, they're running perhaps with no disrespect to people more professional campaigns than they ran in the last election cycle. All that's true. But I want to take you to that point of disenchantment, right? Mm. You can be the most well-funded person in the entire universe. Clive Palmer is a case in point. He spent $18 million or something on advertising in the last federal election, did not did not get a member up anywhere, right? You can have all the resources, but you don't have any prospect of success unless your issues are salient. But the inherent difference here, Catherine, is it's a partnership between the independents, the Labor Party and the Greens. So whatever happens in a seat like mine, the Labor Party will poll, you know, above 10, maybe above 15%. Um, the Greens last time polled above 20%. With those parties running dead in in the seats in which the Teal candidates are contesting, um, that is their base effectively, which they just need to build on. Um, They're pinching votes off the Liberal Party and, of course, um, subsuming the votes of the Labor Party Mm -hmm. and the Greens. So that is actually what's Mm -hmm. happening. So it becomes a two-party contest between the Independent and the incumbent, who are Liberals. And the dynamic is, as you say, slightly different to last time. Climate change is obviously the most pressing issue um, on which they are campaigning on. Since our government committed to net zero by 2050 and has laid out a pretty detailed plan with the technology investment roadmap and backed that up with more than $20 billion worth of investment, I think we've got a strong case. But even in a seat like mine, 
these are not one-issue elections. The election is going to be fought on who can best manage the economy and, of course, as the Treasurer, I can help direct that outcome. And the budget was our plan, not just to ease the cost of living pressures but also the long-term economic plan with further investments to, to generate productivity growth and with a strong economy you can list more drugs on the PBS and fund, as we have done in an unprecedented way, disability support, mental health and women's safety, all of which is true. And then, of course, you layer that upon the national security environment in which Australia finds itself on in and the instability we see in our region, the developments in the Ukraine, all of which hopefully will play into the minds of voters as they go mm. to the ballot box at the next election where they don't want to end up with a hung parliament, where they don't want to end up with a dozen crossbenchers, uh, which makes decision-making that much more difficult at a time when decision-making becomes that much more important. Well, the stakes are high, it's true, but then you say people don't want to end up with an independent crossbench that sort of complicates the mandate of a parliament in, to make quick decisions in Well, we've seen times. that movie before, right? No, so. sure, sure, but I'm going to rebut your point because the feedback, again, in northern Tasmania was that is exactly what people want. So that was really quite interesting to me. So again, I'm inviting you to reflect on why it is that there are voters around who think they are not getting what they want from either major party. I'm not personalising this. Obviously, people are negative about the mm. Prime Minister at this point in time, and I'm not inviting you to reflect on that necessarily. I'm inviting you to reflect on this sentiment yeah. that is that is out there that the major parties are not delivering. Why? What have you done wrong? Well, firstly, I think with every election, there's a growing cohort of swinging voters. So I, I always reflect back to what John Howard told me when he first went into politics, that he thought there were 40% of people who always voted Liberal, 40% who always voted Labor, and then um, there was the 20% the in the middle. By the time he left politics, it was 30% who voted Liberal, 30% who voted Labor, and a 40% cohort mm. in the middle. I think that cohort in the middle's getting bigger at every election, to be honest. Mm. Yeah, so why? Why do you think that? In the current context, there's been huge disruption to people's lives. And I'm obviously talking about COVID, natural disasters, the changing international environment, with new technologies, we're you know we've all got a mouthpiece now with our uh, with our Twitter uh, or our Facebook, and so the conversation's changing. Certainly, the means of having that conversation are changing, and in that time, you know I think the disruption has led to a level of uncertainty about political allegiances as well, mm. and also you know people's satisfaction with respect to, you know, individual decisions. And so they could be happy on this thing, but they're increasingly unha unhappy on that thing. And mm. that means their vote is up for grabs mm. in a way that it wasn't in the previous time. And political parties are seeing declining memberships, mm. just as we've seen declining memberships of, you know, great institutions like the Rotarians or the RSLs or, yep. or church groups. And... I think there's a changing dynamic which is playing out across society with real in political impact. Yes. That means there's more swing voters than ever. 
I caught the tail end of Kevin Andrews' valedictory this morning. He made quite an interesting point at the end because uh, he referenced that, I mean, in... The Shakespeare. <laughs> well, no, 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 not the Shakespeare, no. Be before, be. before the Shakespeare. No, he, he sort of expressed it in a way that I wouldn't sort of through, I guess, a, a, a tribal lens. But he was making the point that because there is what some of your sort of right-wingers in your political movement would call wokeism or identity politics or mm. whatever else, right, because there's more of that, uh, his his suggestion was that actually the institution of the parliament needed to display more civility rather than more kind of high yeah. visibility contrast. I'm interested in what your view is about, you know, we are in these mega trends, right? You are governing in this period of incredible mega trends that are that are disrupting your own profession at the same time as you're legislating all of these policy things right i'm sure mm. i know you well enough to know that you will have turned your mind to it mm. so what do you think is the answer for political leaders is it more civility well he did quote John F. Kennedy, which was an interesting he person did. for uh, yes. for Kevin yes. at the end of his speech. But indeed, um, yes. the point is a real one, which is civility in public life is not a source of weakness or a sign of weakness. Um, and it's something I always admired about Sir Robert Menzies is that he had good relationships across the political divide. I mean, John Curtin was one, but... He also, at a state level before he entered federal politics, had good, strong relationships. And that's something I've certainly sought to have while I've been in this place. So I think you're right. I think the public expect more civility in political life than they probably see. Um, it's always been adversarial, but at the same time, I think they would expect a bit more civility than they see. Mm. Well, it's just interesting too because in this final week of parliament, of this parliament, we've had a debate certainly in your show in around in Labor. There's sort of been, it might sound a bit of a whimsical way of putting it, but there have been these different expressions of grief over the last sort of couple of weeks. The sudden death of Kimberly Kitching obviously sort of... Yeah. It sparked a debate. Uh, Conchetta Fiavanti-Wells obviously kicked off another version of this. I'm, I, I don't intend to get us tangled up in who bullied whom or mm. how legitimate these claims are, but there are these moments from where I sit where politics kind of for a moment is a bit more self-aware about culture and the impact of culture, but then those moments seem to pass. So do you think that political culture at the moment is a big problem, honestly. I certainly think it needs to be improved. And as you say, the last three years have seen some pretty traumatic events mm. um, in this place, which has been a wake-up call for many. And I'm really pleased that there's been you know, formal um, processes that have now given us a roadmap to, to implement and to improve um, the way complaints are handled and, and, and issues are raised. And so I think that will be hopefully of long-lasting benefit. But the Parliament's no different to other workplaces around the country, I think, as well. And there are lessons here for everyone mm. about how they should treat their, um, their fellow members. 
Mm, but also stuff. But it's kind of it's the conundrum, isn't it? Um, it's sort of like you know being a professional boxer. You know, at the end of your if the end of your career, you say in a certain amount of astonishment, "Oh my God, someone hit me!" You know, it's sort of the argument sort of chases its own tail because, as you say, like politics is meant to be adversarial. Politics is at at, at the root. It is war by other means. Mm. That's what it is. Uh, so you can't remove the conflict from it. But I don't know how you solve these problems. I mean, I have been wrestling with this for 10 years as a reporter. Mm. So I don't, I'm not suggesting I've got the answers, but... It's not just across the chamber. It's sometimes on your, your own no, side. No, exactly. I mean, Winston Churchill no, exactly. had that... You know, made that famous comment to a young uh, a member of the House of Commons who he, you know, took into the chamber and he, and he pointed across the chamber and he said, "That's where you think your opponents are, but actually they're sitting right <laughs> they're, behind they're you." They're sitting behind <laughs> you. Well, okay, let's pick up on that. You've given me, you've given me the full toss, so I'm going to pick up on that. <laughs> We've only got a couple of minutes left. Sitting here today, this could be the last conversation that you and I have, at least uh, in this format where you are the treasurer and I'm in my position. Hopefully you're not going anywhere. I'm not aiming <laughs> to. <laughs> well, that's the point. There is this real sense, and I don't mean that I know the outcome of the election because genuinely I don't. I really I, I have no idea yeah. how this is going to go and I have a sense that there is a campaign there for either side to win, right? Yeah. But it does, there is this real sense this week of something ending, that something has come to an end. What do you think? doesn't feel too dissimilar, to be honest, to um, other uh, final weeks in the parliament. Uh, but we start this election as the underdog, as we did the last election. And, and you know all too well that that, that ended very differently to why, where the, the political pundits and the polls expected it to. So this time round, um, you know, we, we go into a campaign off the back of a budget as we did last time. And the budget sets out our plan and, you know, I was very um, pleased to, to see the reaction to it. And campaigns have their own dynamic. And the thing about our political opponents over the last three years is that they have literally been a small target. And that's probably partly because of the pandemic itself and, and, and the nature of the discourse over the last few years. And so they're going to go into a campaign where the spotlight will be on them in a way that it hasn't been for the last three years, and particularly on the alternative leader. I mean, yes, yeah, Scott has, as Prime Minister, has had the blowtorch put on him, and and so, you know, people have seen that, but Anthony Albanese hasn't. And so I think there's a really interesting dynamic here that could play out over the course of the weeks of an election to come. I don't know what the result will be. I'll certainly be giving it my best effort as the Treasurer, the Deputy Leader and, of course, the Member for Kuyong. I don't take anything for granted in my electorate. You know, I've been fortunate to have been elected by them four times uh, and I'll continue to work hard to, to win their confidence. And nationally, there's different dynamics in different states and uh, and that's as a result of different events um, as well that have played out. Just, just quickly, what do you mean by that? Well, obviously in Western Australia, um, borders have been closed for the better part of two years and the Liberal Party lost decisively at a state level um, and, you know, we're, we've got a number of retiring members. So uh, there's, a, there's a dynamic there. Queensland feels stronger for us uh, as, as a coalition right now. Um, I'm hopeful of picking up another seat in Tasmania. 
in the Sea of the Lions. I, I feel we've got you know, terrific people in Bass and Braddon with, um, with uh, Bridget and Gavin. Um, South Australia, obviously, the state election uh, was you know, a big win for Labor. I think they'll look, people will look at it differently at a federal level and Boothby's obviously the major seat where attention is on there. In Victoria, I do feel there's a bit of disenchantment with Daniel Andrews and we're the first to go to the polls given COVID. But the independents are, as we discussed earlier, uh, launching pretty strong campaigns and the seat of Chisholm is very marginal, but we've got terrific candidates um, in Corangamite and Dunkley in particular, which are, you know, Steph Asher in uh, in Corangamite is the local mayor of Geelong and Sean Coombs is a, a survivor of, uh, a real survivor from the TV show in Dunkley. He's, he's got a good chance. Um, and then New South Wales, which has obviously, you know, been challenging with the late pre-selections, but there are seats that we can win there and hopefully Dave Sharma can hold on in Wentworth and, and Trent Zimmerman in North Sydney. So when you go around the country like that, I think it will be close, but again, it will depend on how the election plays out. The Northern Territory is particularly prospective for us with the retirement there uh, as well in, in Lingiari and, you know, and opportunities for us. The ACT is, is a more difficult hunting ground for us. But if you look across the, the country like that and you think that Labor has to, you know, win, you know, nearly 10 seats, you know, eight plus seats to, to govern in a majority, you'd have to say it's, it's going to be close. But we do start as the underdog and, you know, the budget's been so far well received. So I just recognise there's a job to do. No one's getting ahead of themselves, but no one's walking away from the challenge either. Well, there's a campaign you need to get ready for. I appreciate you making the time. It's an absolutely frantic week in all kinds of ways. So so thank you, Josh, for joining me on the show. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. Thank you to Alison Chan, who's cutting the episode this week. Thank you to Miles Martignoni and the whole audio team who've had a very hectic uh, slog during this budget week, which is always one of the biggest political weeks of the year. So thank you to them. Thank you to you guys for listening. I don't know if we will be in an election in days or in about a week, but it is very, very close. And obviously, make sure you subscribe to the pod to keep yourself up to date with all the happenings of the campaign. We'll be answering your questions for the duration. It's a big time for us and for the public, so uh, we need to stay in touch. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. (laughs) 
It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 